Hello everyone, welcome to Scientists at Sea, the podcast brought to you by Exeter Marine. So, what are we going to be listening to today then, Ben? Well, the next two episodes we're going to do, Katie, uh, are all going to be about sound. So, um, I've actually got a sound to play for you right now, so if we just have a listen to this, what do you think this is? Oh wow, intriguing. Okay, it could be a whole number of things. How about uh, the the crunch of tyres on some fine gravel? I mean, I could see why you'd say that, but it's, it's not that. Any other guesses? Uh, a gentle a gentle rain pitter-patter, perhaps? Uh, another good one, but yeah. not that. Um, I mean, how about a fry-up? It definitely it's sounds got a good crackle. like someone yeah, <laughs> getting the saucepans out there and... Uh, Cooking up a storm, but um, it's none of those things. It's okay. actually a coral reef. A coral reef makes sounds like that. Yeah, I had no idea. So this came from a chat with uh, Steve Simpson, who's based up at the Streatham campus in Exeter. Uh, he does a lot of work on bioacoustics, climate change, fish ecology, marine ecosystems, all sorts. Um, I won't go into too much detail because I don't want to give anything away because there's quite a lot of interesting stuff he comes out with in the interview. Um, so here it is. So, Steve, thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome. We should start with, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself um, and what you do at the University of Exeter. Great. OK, well, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, so my name is Steve Simpson. I'm a marine biologist. I'm based on the Exeter campus. Um, and I run a research group that are really focused on um, trying to understand how the world is changing, what impact that has on fish, invertebrates in the oceans, uh, whole marine ecosystems. Um, but we do this not only to deepen our fundamental understanding of biology, but also to try and identify solutions, ways that we might actually be able to fix some of these uh, issues. Um, and so the kinds of um, threats to the marine environment that we work on at the moment include uh, global warming and how that changes the fisheries around the UK and around the world. Um, global warming also impacts coral reefs that are very sensitive to warming seas and we work on the changing ecology of coral reefs around the world. Um, and then a lot of my work has almost by accident um, start, uh, focused on the acoustics of the environment which is something that we haven't really um, drilled into in detail as a marine biology community until very recently. Um, but it turns out to be really fundamentally important for life in the oceans. Um, and so we do everything from trying to understand how animals communicate with each other, how they listen to their environment and what information they get from that, through to them what the impacts are of us putting noise into the ocean from ships or from construction or from oil and gas industries and things. So trying to identify the impacts of noise pollution in the ocean as well. Now, obviously, we're going to speak to some of your, um, your research students later on, and we'll go into more depth with some of those aspects there. But just to sort of paint a general picture, obviously, you mentioned coral reefs there. When, when people think of coral reefs, it's, a very, it's often very visual. You know, they think of lots of beautiful corals, um, colourful fish, things like that. Am I right in thinking that the audio side of things is something that's only very recently sort of been explored in the depths you're going into at the moment? Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. So... Um, you know, probably until uh, the late 1990s, almost all surveys of coral reefs were done by snorkelers or scuba divers with clipboards. 
you know, we're a very visual animal, humans, and so the natural way to examine something as a scientist is to go and look at it and to count things and to measure things and to take photographs and so on. Now, coral reefs are incredible places, absolutely brimming with life. Um, and the challenge that we have if we're counting things um, is that most of the life is inside the reef. And so what you can count is only a really small subset of all of the animals that live within the coral reef. Um, and we've never really been able to get to that. You know, in the 1960s, Jacques Cousteau decided the best way to analyse coral reefs for all of the animals living in it was with dynamite and started blowing the reef apart, which is effective. You can go and then count all the fish that you'd never see and you can find all the invertebrates living in those. 1980s, people used poison to try and poison a whole reef to understand what the whole ecosystem was within that reef. But we've discovered by listening to the reef that we can hear the animals you never see. So these are often cryptic animals, they're hidden, they might be um, nocturnal, so you'd never see them during the daytime, they only come out at night. Um, and because they're not really visual animals, they depend on the sounds that they produce and that they can hear to live on the reef, and we can eavesdrop on those. So when you listen to a coral reef, you're listening to an entire community of fish and many different invertebrates, so crabs, lobsters, urchins, um, uh, snapping shrimps, um, some of the scallops, all of these animals making noise for different reasons. And we're starting to decode what we can hear. So we can actually use sound as a monitoring tool, as a survey tool, um, to assess the health of a reef, to track the health of the reef through time. Um, and what we've realised, the reason I first got interested in this, is that many animals listen in the same way that we do to understand the community. And they do this particularly very early in their life. So forget that you're a human for a minute. Imagine that you are a tiny coral reef fish, or even a tiny lobster, or even a tiny coral, okay? So you've been probably born on the reef through, from hatching from an egg. You then spend days through to weeks out in the plankton, so way out in the open ocean, where you develop. You develop very rapidly from being this small blob of cells to being a quite fast swimming larvae, whether it's a fish or a, a lobster larvae. And you've then got the challenge, three weeks old, to choose where you're going to spend the next several decades of your life. Okay? Um, and so it's a really critical life or death decision to get it right. Now then imagine that you've now got a job, so you're back, back in, the, in the world of humans, you've got a job and you've got, you're living in a new city. Um, how do you work out where you're going to go and buy a house or, or, or rent a house? You get onto the internet and you start researching different neighbourhoods. So from distance, before you've chosen where you're going to live, you start doing your research. And that's what we think fish and many invertebrates can do. They can listen from distance to the reef, listen to who lives there, and use that information then to choose exactly which community they want to go and join. And these fish have different preferences for the sounds they're listening out for. That gets them into the right habitat that they'll be successful in um, as uh, juveniles and then as adults. So that acoustic world of coral reefs turns out to be critical. So from what I've read or what I've listened to, you know, I, I back in the day... It used to be that we thought the, the underwater world was a, was a silent world. Is that right? 
Jacques Cousteau really kind of led us up the garden path with that one. He was an amazing explorer. You know, he invented the aqualung that we depend on to be able to go diving on coral reefs. Um, and did that with a great amount of bravery. He kind of cobbled together bits of equipment that he stole from the, the backs of um, fire stations, old breathing apparatus, to turn it into something you could use underwater. Um, but as a result, it was pretty rudimentary diving gear that he was using. And so whenever he went diving, it sounded like he had Darth Vader following him around. And the reality is that if you take away the sound of scuba diving, the reef comes to a life. You know, underwater acoustics comes to life. So his film, The Silent World, Le Monde de Silence, turns out to have not been quite an accurate title for a world we now know is full of biological noise um, and the acoustics. So the other thing that's important about acoustics is they travel much further than light. So you can probably see underwater on a coral reef 10, 20 metres in really good visibility, but you can hear a reef four kilometres. Um, you know, so, so many animals can hear it for, for kilometres, for several kilometres as well. Um, and that becomes a really important long-distance orientation cue. Um, so it's not a silent world. I, I guess one thing that comes to my mind as someone who's absolutely not a, a specialist in any kind of marine species is how do fish and these other species hear? Because you don't really sort of, you know, you don't think of them having ears or something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's probably what, what led us into um, this world so late in that, you know, as humans, we've got flappy ears on the outsides of our heads and we understand that they're important for, as hearing organs. So it's then not a huge stretch to be able to think about marine mammals, whales, dolphins, porpoises, seals, and to be able to see the, the, the parallels between their hearing organs and ours. Um, when we go to fish... You know, I think until fairly recently, people realised that a very close-range fish make sounds. You get fish that are called um, grunters or croakers or grunts. Um, but these are fish that tend to communicate with each other over very short distances. So the assumption was that they couldn't hear much, much over, over longer distances. When you actually start looking at the hearing mechanisms of fish, they have dense bones in the back of their head, which as a sound wave travels through the fish the dense bones move relative to the fish and they can detect that relative movement. The, the bones hang in a, in a bag of, of hair cells which then the hair cells get moved by the bone so they can then hear that that sound is travelling through the fish. And to take it one step further, many fish then also have a coupling of their swim bladder with their ear. So just remind, remind yourself of when you walk into a, a music festival or into a, um, into a uh, nightclub and you feel the bass in your chest. That's the sound pressure vibrating the air in your lungs. Um, and in the same way, fish that have a swim bladder that they use for their buoyancy, um, when a sound pressure wave hits that air bladder, it vibrates. And many fish have a connection between the swim bladder and the air, so they're using the swim bladder as a secondary microphone underwater. So it turns out fish have lots of ways of detecting sound. What's been more amazing in many ways is that then we've thought, well, OK, so fish can hear, but surely the invertebrates can't. But we look at the lobster, and they've got, as larvae, very uh, convoluted, elaborate antennae, which are locked into the water column, so that then when a sound... Um, wave passes the lobster larvae, its antennae move relative to its head and it can detect that movement. 
So it turns out crustaceans can hear. And then we think, but what about the snails? What about the clams? You know, these are really simple organ organisms. Now, they actually lay down something very similar to the fish ear bone in their body. So they have these, these um, hard, hard structures inside their, um, their balance organ, um, which, again, they can use to detect sound. Turns out crabs, actually, they don't have that same um, hard structure, so they fuse grains of sand together to make something that's similar in terms of a hearing organism. And then perhaps the, most, the greatest surprise has been the work we've done with coral larvae. So these are very simple um, uh, organi organisms, a bag of cells. They don't have a central nervous system. They don't have a brain as such. But they've got hair cells sticking outwards, which they use by beating to swim. And if a sound hits those hair cells, the hair cells move relative to the rest of its body. And we think that that starts to create synchronized swimming in some of the, the groups of hairs. And that creates a directional swimming behavior towards a source of sound. So even coral larvae, turns out, can hear and can move towards sound as a result of that experience. That's fascinating. Um, I had absolutely no idea that coral had that much uh, capability. You sort of think of them as kind of just either being stuck to a rock or floating around. When you're recording these environments, I guess you're creating these sort of these soundscapes. How do you go about doing that? What kind of equipment do you use to, to do that? Yeah, so, so I, I guess that's really been one of the reasons that this field has grown so rapidly is in that until um, you know, probably 20 years ago, the only people that could really afford to take recordings in the ocean were the Navy. They developed underwater um, uh, hydrophones, particularly underwater pressure sensors, for listening out for ships or for t torpedoes or for submarines. Um, but it was classified equipment and it was expensive. But, you know, technology moves on. And so now, thankfully, we can buy off the shelf hydrophones for a couple of hundred pounds, which allow us to be able to listen to the soundscape. So we might, uh, the, the first hydrophone I bought, I didn't have any way of leaving it out on the reef. I had a handheld recorder that I could plug it into. Um, which was about the size of a brick. And so I used to then swim out onto a coral reef and sit in a, an inflatable rubber ring, an old car tyre, and, and bob around and drop my hydrophone over the side and take recordings. Um, we've now obviously got uh, sound traps that we can leave underwater for days, weeks, even years, taking long-term recordings. Um, and we also have accelerometers now, which can detect particle motion, so the vibrational sound of, of uh, the vibrational properties of sound underwater. Um, and this is equipment, again, that we can start to hear the world in the same way that a crab might, or in the same way that a squid or a, a coral larvae might hear that world. So we can think much more about the spatial scale over which animals can hear, types of information that are available from the perspective of the animals that we're really interested in. Fantastic. So you've got all those different methods which sort of reflect the different ways that they all hear and interpret the environment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, the more that we can get inside the heads of these animals and see the world, hear the world from their perspective, the more we can learn about it. It's very tempting to take a, a kind of superior human perspective on the ocean um, but actually, these animals are teaching us more than we can, we can even imagine um, by, you know, by coming at it from a human perspective. I think that's a fantastic introduction into the, sort of the, the concept of what you're doing. And 
I'm going to go into a lot more detail with that with some of your uh, with some of your research students. But um, just before we wrap this up, some people might be thinking, "Oh, Steve Simpson, that name rings a bell," and I'd imagine it rings a bell because of some of the the extra work you've been doing on the side for the last few years with um, with things like Blue Planet Two and Great Barrier Reef. Obviously, big BBC productions. What was it? What's it been like being involved with those alongside also, you know, having all your research to do? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, balancing time is always a challenge, but it's a it's a lovely problem to have. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm lucky that um, I've I've worked on various different series with the BBC, but never to the lev- level with Blue Planet Two. Um, so very early on, when they got the commission to build a uh, another marine series. Um, and at the time they didn't dare call it Blue Planet 2 because Blue Planet 1 was just so incredible. Um, but they wanted to build, a, you know, to, to put together another ocean-focused series. Um, and so I spent a day out at sea with the director of the Coral Reef episode with a blank piece of paper where we really mapped out how we thought the Coral Reef episode could do something fundamentally different to all the previous Coral Reef films that we've seen. Um, And the same with episode one, which told the story of one ocean, brought everything together. And episode seven particularly was exciting for me, the the Our Blue Planet episode, which for the first time with the BBC really decided that the public needed to know the full truth about the current state of the world. So as well as showing us spectacular sequences of marine organisms, marine animals, we had the you know, the, the trevallies that could catch terns out of the air and we had the sea lions chasing down tuna in, in rock pools and so on. Um, we were able to really, uh, in each episode, develop uh, a narrative about some of the big challenges in the ocean, but do that not from a doom and gloom perspective, but also from a, based on our understanding, what are the solutions? And episode seven was something that I got to work on quite a lot, and, and obviously they then featured the work we were doing with underwater acoustics, um, and actually brought together a range of scientists and local volunteers that had really honed in on one of the um, big issues um, and started to think towards solutions. Um, and then obviously as the series developed, I was helping through to interpreting lots of the um, sequences as they came back from the film crews and finally putting together some of the, the scripts, making sure that as an academic advisor, um, uh, and there were three of us, that the scripts were scientifically correct. Um, so while they're also trying to um, compromise, not compromise, they're trying to find the balance with entertainment and with spectacle and with information, education, we also wanted to make sure that the science remained rigorous and robust and grounded in published science. So it was a really, you know, it's an exciting uh, challenge to be able to work with the filmmakers all the way through. What we didn't realise, first of all, was that it was going to become Blue Planet 2 that was going to get watched by uh, coming up to a billion people now. Um, so it really has gone around the world many times and resonated with people around the world in a way that we had only dreamed of. Um, and the follow-on digital content has now been seen by over half a billion people. So people have kept their interest with Blue Planet. Um, and that's been fantastic because because we've identified some of the ocean challenges, people have now started to build their confidence and to say, OK, now... I, I didn't care about sperm whales until a year ago, but now I want to do something about the fact that I saw them eating a plastic bucket. What can I personally do? 
And so that's led to a big drive for uh, ocean uh, beach cleanups, ocean cleanups, lots of people thinking more about sustainable fish solutions when they're going shopping, when they're um, you know, developing new products. What's, what are the sustainable fisheries of the world? How can we avoid some of the unsustainable fishing methods? I was on a beach in, uh, in West India a couple of weeks ago um, where they had historically had a very rare species of, of turtle, the olive ridley, that would come and nest there. Couldn't get onto the beach because of plastic five years ago. And now the beach is immaculate and the olive ridleys are coming back, laying their eggs on those uh, beaches again. You know, so I think we've seen a really positive response as a result of Blue Planet. There's a global consciousness about the ocean, which we now, it's our, it's our challenge as to what we do with that, to give people all of the information, the ideas about ways that they can improve the oceans for our future generations. I mean, it's something that comes up on, on this podcast a lot, actually, is the impact that Blue Planet 2 has had globally, um, plastic especially you see there's just been such a movement with with that it's been fantastic and um i should feel very proud for for what your work's been able to to achieve there and we could go i could go on talking about that for, for a very long time but i've actually found um some very good talks you did with agile rabbit and some other local groups where you focused on all of that and i'm going to link those into the notes that we do with these that goes along with these shows so people can go and find out more there I'm going to let you go in just a minute, but the last question I'm going to ask, and it's probably one you get all the time, and I do apologise, but I've been told I have to ask it, is did you meet David Attenborough? Did you, do you have any stories from anything like that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. What a legend, too. Um, so um, I, was, I was actually really lucky to work with David Attenborough on um, his David Attenborough's Great Barrier Reef series that went out in 2015. Um, and that was really one of the precursors to Blue Planet, too, in that... He was given um, access to the Aleutia, the amazing research vessel that has the submarines and the helicopters, and was able to um, travel around the Great Barrier Reef, a place that he'd visited in the 1950s, um, dive in some of the same places that he'd seen, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Um, and he was interested in putting um, a, a sequence into his episode, second episode on underwater acoustics. And so we were able to really translate the research we'd been doing on the Great Barrier Reef for nearly 20 years um, and, and really just to hear his voice on some of the science that we'd developed, you know, just to hear him say, coral reefs are remarkably noisy places and to really add a lot of the, the colour and the flavour and the, um, the evocative um, narration that he can put into something that often as a scientist you've almost taken some of the romance out of because it's been such a, you know, a, a, a systematic battle to really understand your data and to write the papers and so on. To hear all of that, that wonder come back in was magical. Um, and there was just one magical moment that I had with him towards the end of the day where we'd been filming and um, we realised that we still had one sequence that we wanted to film at the far end of a long beach, it was two kilometres long, um, and we wanted it just at the point that the sun was dipping over the horizon. And the only way that I could get him there in time was to uh, bundle him into the back of an, a dune buggy and then drive the length of the beach. Um, so he was there having spent three weeks on the Aleutia, which is a real luxurious research vessel, suddenly in a, in a, a dune buggy with my dive torch instead of headlights, 
bundling over the sand dunes and, uh, and I said to him, look, I'm really sorry, you've stepped off the Aleutia and all of its luxury and find, you know, suddenly you're uh, in the back of a beat-up old uh, vehicle. And he looked at me and he said, this is more like it. <laughs> and I think he's still, you know, he's still, he's just incredible, you know, he's into his 90s, he's still got such a spirit of adventure, uh, full of questions, full of passion, full of enthusiasm. You know, and I think it's that that's kept him so young, but also so keen now to, to really um, drive forward the environmental message, to, to make sure that the world that he's seen has a positive trajectory as we go forward into the, into the 21st century. And I really passionately believe that we aren't um, too late into this. I don't think that climate change will destroy the world, but it will only... Um, change if we change quickly and I think the, the best analogy is that we have a closing window of opportunity we've got to take the abs you know some bold steps and if we do that in the next generation or two we can really uh, save the oceans and save the world for the generations that are coming ahead fantastic what a great what a great story as well um, but I think it just shows the value as well of having great storytellers and presenters like like David um, working with people you know at the cutting edge and forefront of uh, current science like yourself so um that's fantastic um i think we'll leave it there um thank you very much for taking some time out to come and talk to us today steve and i'm very much looking forward to meeting the rest of your research group as well so um thank you very much take care and hopefully we'll speak to you soon okay thank you very much thanks for having me on Wow, what a story with uh, finishing on David Attenborough there. So big thanks to Steve um, for recording that for us, as he obviously wasn't actually present with us at the time. Um, and it was it was recorded quite a while ago. So since then, he's done loads of things, some really impressive stuff, um, particularly winning the 2019 ZSL Scientific Medal in acknowledgement of all this outstanding research and also giving a, a really inspiring TED Talk too. Yeah, so I'll link all that in the in the show notes and anything else I can find um, that's <laughs> happened since then. But yeah, no, I, I always really much appreciate it because we were meant to meet up on the day. Something came up, but he <laughs> took the time out to go and do his own recording for us, which was really, really helpful. They've done a lot of interesting research since we recorded this. It was a few months ago that we put this together. And in part two, we'll look at it in a bit more detail with Tim Gordon, who's one of his research students. Um, but for now, we'll leave it there.